You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, we'll continue to figure out our audio issues. If you hear a an echo, I do apologize. Uh, over the last few months, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus, and today ends our journey in this wonderful book. Exodus teaches us a lot of different messages, but the clearest one is that Exodus teaches us that it's all about Jesus Christ. Uh, it's all about the Son of God and whom this book points us to, and whom this book uh, shows us and reveals us Jesus. In every way, this book shows us the one who frees us from our own Egypts, uh, the one who parts the waters and saves us, uh, the one who is the Lamb of God and takes away the sins of the world, who puts his spirit in us and changes us forever. And so that's the main idea today. I usually have a, a bit of a, a humorous illustration, uh, but I have so much to cover this morning that I thought we would just dive right on in. Uh, Exodus is all about Jesus Christ. It's really the main idea. That's really where we're going this morning, is it's all about him. Now, my points are going to flow from the book of Exodus. I've come up with seven words that really describe this particular book. Uh, I'm thinking about writing a book one day, but I've, uh, you know, lots, lots to do. So perhaps that's in the future. But we see really seven words that are going to flow from this book. They're going to be up on the screen. The first six is a bit of a recap of the book of Exodus. And then the final seventh point is really uh, the text for today, the tabernacle. And so uh, point one, fire. Point two, plague. Point three, wilderness. Point four, law. Point five, blood. Point six, cloud. And then, of course, point seven, the tabernacle. How this all kind of wraps up for us this morning. And so let's look at this first word. Remember, seven words that really summarize this book to us this morning. Seven words that speak to us about all that Exodus tells us and shows us about Jesus Christ. So number one, fire. Fire teaches us that experiencing God usually starts with burning bushes. The fire teaches us that usually when we start to experience God, it starts with burning bushes. In the beginning of Exodus, as you will likely remember, or as you have heard, Moses is looking for a place. He's looking for uh, a place where he can feed the family sheep. He's not looking for God. Uh, he's not looking to lead a nation. But chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So he turns aside because he sees this great sight. He sees that this bush 
is burning in the opening parts of Exodus. This bush isn't melting away. The leaves aren't falling off. It's not fitting Moses' view of reality. In his view, this can't exist. If it exists, he needs to rethink some of his views. So he turns aside, and the text says he goes over because it's an interesting sight. Now, what we learn from this is that burning bushes are paradigm busters. There's something that we experience that doesn't fit our model of reality. It can't exist. If it does exist, it has to make us rethink some of our views. It's something that can make us and should make us think outside of the box. It challenges our models of life and reality. And in this opening passage in Exodus, this is what causes Moses to turn aside. This is what causes him to go and look. And it's what changes his life. It's what leads to an encounter with God. Now, for many of us, over the last few days, perhaps over the last few months, or perhaps the last few years, there have been burning bushes in our lives. Things that are paradigm busters that God is trying to get our attention with. They're out there to help us to turn aside, to come over to experience the living God. These can be things like the experience of ongoing discontentment, even amidst success and progress, a sense that your worldview perhaps doesn't add up, circumstances, and more. For me, 10 years ago, the burning bush that got my attention was what I saw in Christian community. As a Christian walking into, a non-Christian, I should say, walking into a Christian church for the first time, I saw people who loved each other, who had a deep connection, who were happy, who had a joy that united them, and it rocked me. It challenged my paradigms. It didn't make sense to me as a college student, and I turned aside. And for many of us, God's calling you to himself through a burning bush. He's asking you to turn aside. He's been trying to get your attention through circumstances, through your mind, through other things, to come and to experience him for all that he is. So number one, these burning bushes, they teach us that experiencing God usually starts with these paradigm busters, these things that get our attention as it was here in the book of Exodus through Moses. Next, we see this word plagues. We see this in Exodus chapter 7 through verse 11. And the plagues demonstrate to us that God is God and he is God alone. The plagues demonstrate to us that God is God and he is God alone. As we read the pages of the book of Exodus, Israel is crying out to God, but Pharaoh will not let them go. He's the embodiment of a really, really bad nation at that time. And so God answers with 10 consecutive judgments or plagues. It's a pretty intense couple of chapters, but interestingly, Exodus 12 reads that God 
is executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And what we see is that in each of these plagues, as they, they each start to fall, they fall in a specific area of life that were supposed to be protected by these Egyptian gods. Said another way, in each different plague, God is humiliating whatever Egyptian god is supposed to be God over that particular area. If it's the god of crops, well, there goes the crops. If it's the god of fertility, well, there goes fertility. Or the god of beauty, well, now there's boils on everybody's face. It's humorous, but it's supposed to make us reflect on questions like these. Who or what are we looking to provide for our needs? Who or what do we look to for comfort in our trials? Who or what gives us security and beauty and strength? For the Egyptians, the plagues meant it sure wasn't Osiris. It sure wasn't Anubis or Ra or Haket. And forever, for us, whatever that blank is this morning, the only real and ultimate source is the maker of heaven and earth, God alone. Other gods will fail us, but he never will. He's God alone. Next, this word, the wilderness. The wilderness, we see this in Exodus 15 through 16. And the wilderness reminds us that the Christian journey is a process. The Christian journey or the Christian life is a process. Uh, After Egypt, for a very, very long time, the Hebrew people are wandering in the wilderness. That doesn't mean forest. That means the Saudi Arabian desert. Moses is being led by God, and he's taking them on a very strange and inconvenient path. It's a detour. They've not sinned. They didn't misread the map, but for some reason, God's leading them on this very strange and challenging detour in the wilderness. But what we find as we read the pages of Exodus is that God is actually leading them on this rough path. Uh, The reason they're hungry or why in later chapters in Exodus they're going to be thirsty or in danger or in rough spots is because God led them there. It's part of the journey he's taking them on. It's part of his plan for them. It's a great reminder that God uses adversity and even pain, sometimes for a purpose. When he made this world, he didn't make deserts. He didn't make disease. He didn't make death. These things aren't part of the blueprint. Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus, but we live in a broken world, and everyone, including Jesus himself, faces this brokenness. The good news this morning, though, is that if we're in Christ, God can weave this brokenness these troubles, the difficulties of this world into something beautiful. Romans 8.28 says, He is working out all things for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. He can use deserts as part of a process in our lives. And one day, as Isaiah 35 says, streams will run through those deserts and burst with life. Many of this morning probably feel like our lives are on a detour. Maybe you think you're in the wrong city, you have the wrong job, you got into the wrong relationship, or you dreamed about something and failed at that and you can't get it back. 
You had a vision for what the sweet life looked like. But stuff went wrong, and now you're on a major detour. You're in the desert, so to speak. The good news for you this morning is that Exodus reminds us that this can be a very good place. Over and over again, these are the exact conditions that a person finds themselves in when God himself starts to break through. Over and over again, most people say that their conversion or that their experience with God happened because they thought their entire life was on a detour. Over and over again, when someone begins to feel like their entire life is on a back road, it's then and only then that they're on spiritual main street. They're getting close. Trust him. He's with you in your deserts. He knows absolutely what he's doing. Number four, another word that we see in Exodus, uh, a summary word of this wonderful book, is the word law. See this in Exodus chapter 17, and it's a prominent theme in this book. The law shows us how we can be God's people. The law shows us how we can be God's people. In the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives the famous Ten Commandments. They're famous because virtually every legal code of every civilized nation is based on these commandments. But notice what the Bible says the law is not given to do. Exodus 19, you saw how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Now it's important to point out what comes first and what comes second. What comes first when we see the law is God rescuing them. He pictures himself as a strong eagle that swoops down and rescues them. The idea here is that they did not contribute to their salvation. They didn't fight their way out of Egypt. They didn't follow the rules to earn themselves deliverance. God saved them. God rescued them. And then what follows is obey, live it out. Follow, live out my ways. Now this is really, really, really important. Because this is how God speaks in that order all the time throughout the Bible. I have saved you. I have rescued you. Now follow me. Whereas every other religion on the face of the planet says the opposite. Follow me, do good, and then I will rescue you. Then I will save you. But God starts with grace. He starts with sheer mercy and sheer love. He starts with sheer mercy he rescues us, and then he gives us a way to represent him in the world. And when we do that, when we live in his ways, we end up looking different. The way we use power, the way we use sex and money look different. The way we live it out looks different. I always love the quote about the early Christians. The Romans and the Christians were very different. The Romans gave nobody their money and almost everybody their body, but the Christians gave everybody their money and almost nobody their body. God's love changes us, and his ways shape us as we represent him in the world. Number five, another word we see is blood. Blood 
runs through the book of Exodus, and it reminds us of the very heart of the Christian faith. It reminds us of the very heart of the Christian faith. Exodus says over and over that the ultimate reality at the ultimate heart, at the ultimate center of the Christian faith is a bloody death of a helpless victim. And in Exodus, there is blood and it's everywhere. It's filled with blood, a lot of blood, most of it flowing from the animal sacrifices. Now, sometimes today when people hear about animal sacrifices, blood, and God's wrath in the Old Testament, they're quick to say, that definitely can't be God. They point out that he sounds more like an ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty God worshipped by an ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty society rather than the God of love. But over and over and over again in the Bible is what we find, that God's wrath is not this petty or spiteful deity from of old. Instead, it's a holy wrath. It's an opposition towards things that hurt people or this world. And over and over again, as we read the pages of the Bible, what we find is that these sacrifices, as graphic as they might be, have a much deeper meaning. They have a much deeper design. They're not the kinds of sacrifices made to appease an irritated, bloodthirsty deity. As we might read about in ancient literature, there's something much more complex. The blood flowing everywhere would have been a shock to their eyes at first. It's graphic. It's intense. But it was teaching something. And what's being taught is that what's wrong with life on this earth is very serious. It's like really, really serious. It's so deep that the solution has to be deep. It has to be shocking. And the solution is something called substitutionary atonement. It's the heart of the faith. Substitutionary atonement essentially means a substitute or a third party dies for the debt of our sin. But in reality, we eventually find out it's not just a third party. Thousands and thousands of years later, God himself, he takes on flesh, and when he dies on the cross, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of what all of these sacrifices were all about. They're about deep deep, deep forgiveness, deep reconciliation to God, the blood of God himself being shed for us. God choosing to forgive us, to absorb in his body on the cross our penalty so that we could be forgiven, so that we might know God, so that we could have trust in him. Number six, another word we see that's very prominent in the book of Exodus is cloud. Exodus 33 and 34. And the cloud reminds us that we were made for the glory of God. The cloud reminds us we were made for the glory of God. This is how Exodus is going to end. The cloud represents the glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it means significance, or it could mean importance or weightiness. And as a human being, we cannot live without glory. We can't live without significance. We can't live without importance. We need assurance that we matter. 
Some of us look for that in our jobs. It's an amazing feeling when someone says he or she is really, really good at what they do. It makes us feel in that moment like we're real, like we're there, like we matter, like what we're doing matters. We need that as human beings. Significance, importance, or others of us look for it in relationships. It's an amazing feeling to hear someone say, I missed you, I love you. It makes us feel real like we matter to somebody. We need that as human beings. Significance, importance, so much so that when we meet someone who says they don't feel seen or they don't feel loved, the alarms go off in our heads. We can't live without glory. We can't live without significance, without importance. But as we read through Exodus, Moses knew that all of these little glories, as important as they are, they fade. All of these things can fade away. We retire out. We'll be replaced. Love can flicker out. People can pass away. But with God, there's another type of glory. It's an unfading glory. It's the ultimate glory. And to know him this morning is to find ultimate significance to find ultimate love. And Exodus is all about this, that the glory of God is in reach, that we can build our lives on that glory. Which really leads us to our final point this morning, the end of Exodus and the text and passage that was read, the tabernacle. Now, up until this point, God has said that he wants a relationship with his people to go a step further. He wants to live with them right in the middle of their lives, right in the center of their camp as they move closer and closer to the promised land. And so Moses gets these instructions on the mountain on how to build God's house, this thing called a tabernacle. Its design and look are very symbolic. And some things start to happen There's a little bit of a golden calf incident, but eventually they get back on track. And here at the end of Exodus, God's finally giving them the green light to build his house, his temporary dwelling place, this thing called the tabernacle. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first day month. The passage goes on, and the Lord explains in detail how to set up each item. It's very specific. And then we see a summary verse, verse 16. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. That's exactly a year since they'd been free. The passage continues, and it reiterates how everything's been set up according to specifics. And then verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in this instance, the presence of God in that moment was so powerful that verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, up until recently, every civilization in the world has had something like a temple or a shrine or a tabernacle. 
This is because every culture in the world up until recently has believed two things. Number one, there's another world. This is not all there is. Above and beyond, behind this material world, there is a spiritual world, a transcendent world, an ultimate reality. And number two, there's a barrier that exists between these worlds. There's a gap. There's a chasm. And we need some type of assistance. We need a door that gets us into that other world. Now, all the different civilizations or cultures have had different kinds of ways that they approached the barrier problem. They had different types of rituals, different types of priests, different ideas. But they all agreed on these two things. There's another world. There's ultimate glory out there. There's something else out there. There's the divine. And there's a barrier that exists between our world and the other world. And we need some type of help to get through that barrier. Now, I said up until recently, because we're living in a world today where, for the most, most part, our culture has been saying for a while, forget about doors, forget about gates. There may be something out there. There may not be, but it just doesn't matter. Whether there's something out there or not doesn't really make any difference in how you make sense of the world or how you live your life. The thought essentially goes today that everything we see in this world actually just has a natural or empirical answer, no matter what it is. There's a psychological solution or a physiological solution or a sociological solution. We don't need spirit or souls or, or divine things to explain anything. But recently, we've started to see this idea take hits. There's been a massive comeback of faith and spirituality, especially here in the West, and more and more people are realizing that this idea just doesn't make sense. It doesn't sit well. It's probably because within ourselves we crave the other world. We know that there's glory out there. We can feel it sometimes. Or maybe it's because we sense that things important to us like human rights and the value of every human being can't actually be rooted in who's in power or popular vote or changing cultural opinion or psychology. We sense they're rooted in something higher, something unchanging, something transcendent, something divine. The point is, whether we know it or not, we long for the divine. We long for the transcendent, for God himself, the other world. But at the same time, we can feel the barrier. We can feel the block. Now, in the Bible, that barrier is called the glory of God. And the glory of God is the holiness of God going public. The holiness of God is his absolute moral purity his absolute moral goodness. It's who he is. It's all of his perfections. And that creates a massive chasm or gap between us and him. Now today it's actually very popular to hear everyone and anyone say that they have a relationship with God. Lots of celebrities say that. Uh, most people in Congress say that. Like everybody says we have a relationship with God. The thought goes, he's the big man upstairs. He's invited me to come on in. I've come on in, and now we're besties. 
But I've noticed over and over again that when people in life actually start getting closer to truly knowing God, to truly reaching out to the transcendent, to reaching out to the divine, they start to feel these barriers. They start to feel this block. Like if they're coming from a more religious or moral background, the thought usually is God is righteous, God is holy, I'm his friend if I'm righteous too. And what happens, what I've seen is that as they start to get closer and closer to the real God, they start to realize that they're really not so good. They start to see that the motives, their motives, aren't really all that they had hoped that they were. They sense that God isn't awed by their virtue. And what begins to happen is they begin to feel unworthy. They're starting to see His holiness, His glory, and they're seeing their own sin in light of that, and they feel this barrier. They feel this block. Or perhaps if they're coming from more of a non-religious background, the thought usually is God's the ultimate creator. He's created me to be free, and I'm going to be free. And what happens is that as they start to get closer to this real God, they start to realize that their idea of freedom may not actually be freedom. They realize that God has a will. He gets to define good and bad, right or wrong. And what happens is they start to feel unworthy. They're starting to see his holiness, his glory, and they start to see their sin. They feel a barrier. They feel a block. But enter the tabernacle. Enter the book of Exodus. The God of Israel, the only God, actually does come. And through this little object lesson of a tabernacle, God shows us that there is a way past this barrier, past this block. There's a way to know the other world, to have a real relationship with Him. And what we discover is that it's through faith in God, through sacrifice. There's a way to cut through that barrier. There's a way to know the other world, to know the divine, and that way was through faith in God through sacrifice. Eventually, as time goes on, the Hebrews find their promised land, and the tabernacle becomes a temple, something more permanent, something more real. But it was, a, it was, a, it was common sense all along that this was a picture pointing to something, something bigger, something more real. And one day Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and he's at this very temple. It's a revered place. It's a special place. It's the doorway into the divine. And he says something that enrages the lovers of this tabernacle, of this temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, he comes on the scene and he says, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. The object lessons can go. The reality is here. He's saying he is the other world. He is the transcendent. He is the divine. And he's saying he is the one who cuts through the barriers. He cuts through the block because he is the sacrifice. He's all of it. And when he goes and dies on a cross, he makes this so clear. He says, it is finished, meaning now it is really finished. The tabernacle is complete. 
The temple is complete. Moses created an object lesson, but the real thing is here. And at that moment, Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, says that the veil of that temple was ripped apart from top to bottom, almost like two big invisible hands were up there and ripping it apart and saying, we're really not going to be needing this anymore. The point is, Exodus is all pointing to him, to Jesus Christ, the one who frees us from our Egypt, who parts the waters and saves us by his sheer grace, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who puts his spirit in us as a deposit and a guarantee of what's to come. Trust in him today as we close out this wonderful book, the one who can save us, the one who can make all things new. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.